there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About skewl. About class sizes. About cuffing, but maybe forever. About nearly public sex. About lattes. About the adjunct crisis. About tailoring. About college towns. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are going to be discussing Office Hours by Katrina Jackson. What, what, what? I do believe this is self-published, but I'm not sure. I think it was. There's no publisher listed. So anyways, uh, I'll read the back of the book and we'll kick things off. Bad. What's life like on the tenure track? You wouldn't know, <laughs> would you, Isabel? I would not. For assistant professor of sociology, Dr. Deja Evans, it sucks hard every day. Between the class prep, the meetings, grading student work, trying to find time to complete her own research, and the meetings, she didn't have a life. She had a digital calendar that decided whether she got to wallow in her feelings at 3 p.m. or 7 p.m. on Thursday or maybe Sunday. And the worst meeting of them all was the two and a half hour, once a month, faculty senate, which was drier than her dating life, duller than her skin in winter, and far longer than her attention span. You cannot convince me there wasn't a draft of this summary that didn't say drier than her puss. (laughs) The only thing that made those never-ending faculty senate meetings bearable was watching Dr. Alejandro Mendoza, associate professor of history, breathe. For years, Deja had harbored a kind of secret crush on the sexiest man on campus, never thinking that he would ever feel the same until one unexpected day they have a steamy after-hours encounter in her office and suddenly her life seems much more exciting. That lasts about half a minute. Over the course of a hectic academic year, Deja tries to survive her classes, help her students, prepare herself for her third year review, and most important of all, she has to learn how to get out of her own way and just let Alejandro love her. Dope. Dope as hell. So I chose this book because I thought it would be a great back to school choice. It is. It came out really recently on April 30th of the year of our quarantine, Mm. 2020. Mm. And I actually discovered Katrina Jackson on a Kindle recommendation. I can't remember what book I finished. Um, And they're like, you should read this. And it sounded really interesting. It was from her. She has a series about a small town and how it like is recruiting new people to come live there. Mm hmm. And it was very sexy. It was a thruple short novel. And so I really enjoyed it. And I thought conceptually this would be right up Isabeau's alley. Tis. Yeah, so that's why we're reading it. Welcome back to school. Listeners, are any of you in a university situation? I hope you're okay. <laughs> I hope you are snitching on every campus party. Mm. I hope that your Zoom classes are filled with cool ass backgrounds and kids who are actually trying to engage in their breakout rooms rather than blank voids with white names that you just don't know if they're there or not. Like I taught earlier today and I had a student who hadn't contributed at all class, like had muted themselves, had a blank screen. And then like everybody left because class was over. And I was like, do you have a question, student, student, Bueller? And then they literally clicked over and they were like, I want you to know I was here the whole time. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh. And they clearly hadn't been. And it was just like... Okay, the recording's going to be on the website. Oh my gosh. Do the homework. But how is that like super different from like when you were teaching in person and students just wouldn't show up to class? Oh no, it feels like that, but a little bit worse. Like what it feels like is when a student falls asleep when you're being observed in a classroom by your direct supervisor. That's how it feels? That's how it feels. Does your direct supervisor observe every class? No, but on the day that they observed me in my first year of teaching at one of the places I teach at, one of my students fell asleep and it was pretty embarrassing that sucks but I handled it with grace under pressure and that was unfortunately one of my favorite students that sleep 
super. Why, whenever you're teaching Zoom classes, why does it feel like your supervisor is watching you? Why is it that heightened? I think it's because like you're alone in the Zoom and like, especially if the students turn off their cameras, which some of my students have to do for a numerous reasons. It just like feels like talking to a void that like is sort of responding to you. I don't know. It feels very alien, but also very surveilled. I am. I'm on the TikTok and (laughs) I saw a TikTok someone posted of one of their college Zoom classes where one of their fellow classmates was at a sorority social function. Oh, wow. And unmuted themselves, but wasn't at their computer or their phone or wherever. Mm -hmm. And so it was just like this really disruptive, like white noise of a sorority in the background while all of her classmates were yelling at her to go on mute. And I was like, this is absolute chaos. This is insanity. And that is why it isn't at all like your students just not showing up to class. But really and truly, I do feel for first year college students because, you know, it really is an awesome opportunity for self-discovery. You're just doing it in a different way than anyone's ever done it before, which is kind of bitching. But if you're feeling sad or feeling blue, you know, follow us on Twitter and watch people bully us every once in a while. Or follow us on Instagram where people treat us with reasoned debate. Uh, We have a lot of fun on the Instagram. So do follow us on Instagram at Womance. I'm glad I got the chance to exploit this very dark time to plug our social media. Yeah. All right. So what do you want to start with with office hours? Can I ask you a question? I think this is where I want to start. (laughs) Sure. I want to ask you, Isabeau, who works in academia, what was the experience like reading this book your first week back at it? It was delightful in the ways that it was delightful. It was woundingly stressful in the ways that it was stressful. Like, too true, don't show me myself (laughs) version of that. And also, like, it was, like, the exact kind of fantasy fulfillment academically and professionally that I would love to see in my own life, but also in the lives of my colleagues. So that's weird. Usually romance novels are not that kind of fantasy. So, yeah, I mean, I obviously love this book. I, like, consumed it in two sittings. While I should have been grading papers and uh, giving students feedback and, you know, fixing the shell of my um, website. I actually had a question because there is a little bit of insider lingo. Most of it gets explained over the course of the book. But one piece of insider lingo that didn't get explained was a class shell. What's a class shell? So on something like Brightspace or Blackboard, you have what the IT department calls a class shell and they populate it for you with like basically nothing except your name and that's pretty much it and then you have to do the rest you have to put your syllabus there and like you have to fill it with the class readings and this that and the other thing so like when you get a class shell that's cool because it's like here are 16 weeks or here like 10 weeks and then like you have to do all of the work to fill it and oftentimes like blackboard or brightspace are like really incompatible with the way that your syllabus works and blah 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 you know okay Was it because you were identifying with Deja or were there times where it was like just stating a simple fact of your job and it was like deeply stressful to you to read it? Or was it always like when she's stressed, I'm stressed? I think it was that mostly. So like when Deja's stressed, I felt it most acutely, like especially as it came to like discussions of like the course and the syllabus and like getting back to students and also like this constant feeling of imposter syndrome. I think like those were the most moments that I was like, oh, that's salt in my own wounds. But mostly like Deja felt like such a very particular kind of professional mirror. So, you know, it's hard to separate because like so much of like Deja's whole personality is wrapped up in her profession and like all of the things that she's doing and like all of the quirks about her are really wrapped up in her work. So it's hard to like be like, no, it's Deja or like, no, it's her work because both of those things feel like inextricably tied. Yeah. So to kind of like root the listeners, so Deja is tenure track, but she doesn't have tenure yet. She has like, what, three years to make tenure? She has seven years to make tenure, but she's at her three-year review, which is one of the mutually agreed upon like transition points. So like if you haven't met the things that you need by your three-year review, you and the university can part ways and it's not as bad as going up for tenure after that seventh year and not getting it. Yeah, I did work in higher education admin and I remember the seven-year tenure track rejections being... Devastating, but also like the tenure awards also being kind of hollow. (laughs) 
But so she's up for her three year review and she feels like she hasn't done enough in the way of. So like you get approved by like a board of your peers, air quotes. And it's determined based on, you know, the amount of research you've had published and books and work you've done towards expanding the knowledge of your discipline in Deja's case sociology, but it's also based on that very sticky wicket known as whether or not other people like you. Mm -hmm. And so to earn the appreciation of her fellow faculty members, she's carrying a lot of like annoying bullshit on her shoulders, teaching a lot of 101 classes, which is a ton of grading and a lot of disinterested folks attending your courses. Uh, She also has her added obligations of advising like my film advisor I don't think they ever met with me once in person oh wow so good for Deja I mean it was a minor but it was still like oh okay (laughs) in undergrad Mm -hmm. not in graduate school yeah graduate school was so much worse also Deja's experience of graduate school yeah also Deja's I also think about this like track of person that's like a little frightening given like our current like it sounds so dumb given the current climate but it's frightening to think about people who go directly from undergrad to graduate school to adjunct to a tenure track it just feels overwhelming to think about well I mean ideally you skip the adjunct move like if you can be in the academic market and not have to take an adjunct position like you're super golden and that's also one of the things that I thought was like really delicately handled in this book. Deja also has the weird experience of like having to feel grateful for being shat on because like the alternative is also worse and one of her friends is experiencing. Yeah. And like that's such a weird shit sandwich where it's like be grateful for the job that you have even as it exploits you and all of your best self because the alternative is literal poverty and selling plasma. Yeah. That's always a weird thing, I think. There are people who adjunct who, like, love it. Yeah. Like, it's a great fit for their lifestyle. I think of, like, a creative writing professor I had who was like, I spend most of my time and make most of my money, you know, selling short stories and working on my novel. And my wife is a doctor, so I can, you know afford to be like a lower earner in the household and we're fine and I take care of my two kids most of the time and then I come in to teach and grade not 40 hours a week right Mm -hmm. and so in that way being an adjunct feels like a good option however the demand for that kind of like low paid labor people who aren't going up for tenure people who aren't publishing research is higher than the demand for actual professors because tenure is kind of like I know of professors who died in their jobs (laughs) yeah I do too it's not uncommon yeah instead of retiring which is a real problem because it doesn't allow other people to enter that very specialized workforce and when you're adjuncting like you literally you have to work multiple at multiple institutions oftentimes in multiple departments you are as qualified as tenure track professors and oftentimes a lot of adjuncts really want to be tenure track there just aren't those positions open on the market and so like you know you've got to eat exactly and then you like lose the time and space to do that research yeah or that creative work that's important for you to like get tenure stand out and get a tenure track or potentially tenure someday and so it's like this really like academia is as polluted by capitalism as every other yes institution that you would ever enter into and I think this book had a very precise bead on exactly the way that capital has infiltrated or been tied into academia like I think a lot of people who aren't in academia are like oh ivory tower like oh what a cush job (laughs) And it's like, uh, actually, it's just as cesspooly as anything else. There was, okay, so I do want to talk about this dichotomy between Alejandro, who has tenure, yep. and his perspective on work. Yes. And our heroine Deja's perspective on work. 
Yes. And Alejandro has all of these great boundaries. Her friend Tony also has all of these great boundaries that she respects and upholds. So she's not worn down. But all of them acknowledge that that's a privilege of having tenure. Yes. And that Deja literally doesn't have the option of saying, like, I'm not going to answer emails after a certain amount of time. I don't need to submit grades until I come back for the next semester. Which, by the way, as someone who hasn't gotten their grades until the next semester, please don't. There are those of us who are, like, trembling with anxiety, who, like, really need to know grades were. Also, I don't know any professors who like the admin would let them happen. Like I received like six notices about the ad drop window where it's like if students haven't arrived for the first two classes, you are mandated to drop them. I like got six notices about that. And I know I'm not like tenure track, but still I know tenured faculty are getting those messages. Well, also, I think it's worth explaining like why you are obligated to drop them and why someone would be motivated to not drop them from there. Well, there are a couple reasons there. Like, I'm motivated to drop them because you don't want the weight on the roster, but also to protect their full refund. Right. So there are admin people who are like, the student needs their full refund. Mm -hmm. You're obligated. But there are department heads who they get funding based on the amount of enrollment that they have in their classes that they're able to report out. So there is that rub there, which is why the administrators feel the need to email you eight times about (laughs) your obligations. I mean, it's good. I was happy to receive those reminders. Although like it's weird to get one after the first class where it's like, well, if they show up to the second, this is moot. But thank you for the reminder anyway. Anyway, off topic, work in academia. Alejandro has it way easier. He has tenure. He's in this relaxed phase where he's like done the rat race and he's just feeling good in his super hot three-piece suits and he's flirting. He's going to... Nicaragua over the summer to do a little bit of research on history. God, his job does sound fucking cush. Like his students love him. He does this like appointment at the faculty senate, you know, and he does his work for the Latinx student union. I like, yeah, he's like got like the dream version of professorship. And so he recognizes that Deja isn't in his position, but she also has bad coping mechanisms. Like even in the thick of Alejandro's like hunt for tenure, it was never as bad as what Deja is suffering from and he's like well she's bad at this and then it's revealed to him that it's like no it's fucking different for men dude yeah I really appreciated that so at one point Deja kind of shuts down she's feeling overwhelmed in the first three weeks of spring semester and she stops speaking to Alejandro even though they have initiated their romantic relationship and he goes to her friend Tony who as a tenured black woman faculty member is mentoring a lot of women like Deja who are women identified who are people of color as well and so she mentors a lot of those people and she tells him like the book doesn't really imply that he's thinking like oh wow she's bad at this he just wants to know what's going on with Deja because he doesn't understand and the book takes the opportunity to do something that it does quite often throughout the course of the text which is to provide like a soliloquy Mm -hmm. (laughs) to maybe even a diatribe on what it's like for women of color in academia. And we're told that while we've been watching Deja struggle deeply, like this is a very angsty short novel, but Mm -hmm. all of the angst is related to work and not her romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. It's so much worse for other women. Like Deja is actually doing a very good job of coping and her colleagues are not. We get flashes of this with her friend Marie, who is an adjunct, who is going up for a tenure track position. Um, They are making her interview. By the way, if you ever are from outside of a university and you're applying for a university position, do know that they are obligated to interview quite a few people, but that they most of the time have one person in mind for the role already internally. Just because universities are like these very specific ecosystems that are hard to integrate new biological beings into using the ecosystem metaphor. Well, it's because like they're minting too many professors for the system because like tenure positions are being
being replaced by like triple adjunct positions because like more people are going to college than ever. But like if you're not making more tenure track positions, you're just making more adjunct positions, which means that you're just creating an academy of precarity. Yeah. And this book was really good about describing those levels and how, yeah, Deja's in a position of privilege because she's on the tenure track and it could be so much worse like it is for her friend Marie. But like one of the things that I thought was so wild about the first quarter of this book is that she and Alejandro like have this like steamy stare down at the Senate faculty meeting and they have this like amazing sexual experience in her office and they're almost caught and she has to, you know, back away. And she's thinking about it later and she's thinking about like this yawning black hole of loneliness inside of her and how she's been burying herself in work and she's been able to ignore it. And like knowing that Alejandro like returns her feelings has made her suddenly super aware of her loneliness. And then she's got this weird moment where she's like, am I doing things that I think are inappropriate because I'm so lonely or do I really want this? And like her insecurities around being loved and accepting love and like being cherished and being held precious by another human always came as a surprise to me because we saw Deja so much at least I did I saw her so much through like her students eyes and her friends eyes where it's like she really does have her shit together and like even as she's talking about how she's gonna like drink two glasses of wine and cry while watching Snapped I'm like yeah that seems right that seems like you know a good coping mechanism I do worry about you I do worry about you by the way shout out to the original series Snapped seriously is it on crime TV or true TV I think it was on true TV. It doesn't really matter. Just Google snapped. What a great piece of programming. So good. So good. What's striking to me, Isabeau, is not that she's struggling with this idea of like, am I worthy? Am I good enough? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's the double layer here of like having this very, very, very foxy dude. (laughs) Yeah. Super hot. Tenured history professor. In amazing clothes. In amazing clothes. Like, it's not just that like, am I worthy of his interest? She's also going up for this like, three year checkpoint of like, are you worthy of interest? Are you smart enough? Are you witty enough? Are you brilliant enough? Are you creative enough? Right. Are you nice enough? Do you just like come across as the kind of woman of color full stop that we would want to keep around? Right. Because all of those identities are also, you know, ticks against her. And if you don't believe me, just look at your typical professor. Keep in mind that women of color, black women specifically, Mm -hmm. have the most advanced degrees of any oppressed group in the United States. And yet how many black women professors have you had? Yeah. How many high level black women administrators have you had? So anyways, going through all that specificity is just to arrive at the point that I think women every day, regardless of their position, regardless of where they live in the world, are faced with this problem of like, am I worthy Mm -hmm. of another person's love? Am I worthy full stop? One of my favorite articles of all time, I think it was written by Gia Tolentino in A Different Mm -hmm. Life, was called Dick is Plentiful and of Little Value, Mm -hmm. which just points out the fact that there are as many straight men in the world. Men who would have sex with women identifying people in the world as there are women who are interested in having sex with them. And yet we always feel this need to make ourselves like prostrate. And you never see like women's Tinder bios that are like, if you aren't X, Y, Z, if you aren't making 70,000 K plus a year, if you're not like whatever the stereotype is of what women are looking for, there aren't really a ton of Tinder bios that are like, I'm only looking for this, but there are so many many men's tender profiles that are out there just to reiterate to women how disposable they are. I think that's such a good point that like this book did such a good job of explaining that like it didn't leap out to me at the time because like she has this like sort of refrain that she has with Alejandro where she's like I don't deserve you you're so good like he cooks for her and like remembers her coffee order or whatever. And he doesn't cook her a stir fry. Yeah. I know and she says the bar is on the floor and then she goes through some of like her horror stories of like what settling in graduate school looked like for her and he like is made uncomfortable even as he's laughing yeah but like what was so insane about the truth of that statement is like I know like plenty of my friends you know who are stuck in this like weird ass place where it's like well do I settle for a douchebag or do I keep looking because the looking is terrible or it's like do I just like not for a while and it's like yeah like the idea that like feminism has entered 
weird, the zeitgeist. Cool. But like if it doesn't change men's behavior around like fucking treating women like human beings that are deserving of like recognition, acknowledgement and gratitude, then like what have we done? Yeah, exactly. The cognitive dissonance, like I've talked about it before. The relationship therapist I watch on YouTube, he was describing like what it means to be a narcissist and he was explaining why people suffer from narcissism. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, having laid all this out, most straight men will do similar things. Like they have to reshape the world when they've done something wrong to accommodate the idea that they cannot do wrong. And so they're not really gaslighting you. Their survival mechanism is they genuinely need to believe that they're right at all times because every piece of media they've been fed has told them that they are right all the time. And like it would be world destroying for them to entertain the idea that they're wrong. And one of the things I love about Alejandro as a hero, and as I hope not a fantasy, is that when he hears these stories, Isabeau, exactly as you said, he feels uncomfortable. Yeah. He feels disturbed by them. He doesn't think like, oh, hilarious, right? Yeah. Because I don't think men have the right to think those stories are hilarious yet. I think that they need to hear those stories about, for example, from the novel, like a guy telling her he made her cheeseburgers when there's Burger King wrappers in the trash next to him, right? Yeah. Like, you need to accept that as like, he was trying to have sex with a woman who he thought so little of that she wouldn't be able to identify the fact that he hadn't actually prepared those cheeseburgers. Yeah. Like, there's so much insidiousness behind that kind of behavior that is very real and very true to the experience of being a woman trying to be loved and respected. And I think if anything, like, I don't think men necessarily feel the feminist theory as deeply as they should. Like, I think there's awareness, but I think in general, it's at a very base level and they're not able to apply that to women they actually want to fuck. And so it was very gratifying to read about Alejandro being disturbed by those behaviors. Not only disturbed by those behaviors, but then when Tony like takes him to task and is like, these are all the ways in which you do okay, but these are all the ways in which you have failed to be an ally. Yeah. Have you never noticed that your best boss, who is a woman, Sheila, she always goes tooting her horn about the diversity of her history department. Have you ever noticed that like all of her quote unquote diverse hires are men? Yeah. And I think it's important to note that like diversity has become this like really meaningless term that people apply to like anything, like one black person in the room and they're like, wow, what a diverse group of salespeople we've brought in today. We've done it. No. Yeah. So then to have like Alejandro was feeling fucking smug about the work that he did and like his own department. Yes, and it took yes. it took a black woman to be like, hey, guy, like you're doing OK, but you need to do better. These are the ways that you can do better because like it's Deja today. And she said this amazing line. I highlighted it where she's like, you know, Deja's got you in her corner, but not everybody has someone like you. Yeah. And I was like, that's so key here. Right. Because it's like so you can be marshaled to do good work for your romantic partner, but can you be marshaled to do good work for your colleagues? Yeah. People who you're not sexually attracted to, can you manage that? Can you muster the energy to do that? Yeah. I think that's so important. Like a huge hurdle that I see when I see men talking about feminist issues, which men talking about feminist issues, I think we should go ahead and put that on a post-it for a memoir title. Fair, writing it down now. Like someone on TikTok, oh my God, my life is TikTok. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I want to take this moment to apologize to my family and friends for all the TikToks I send you. I want to apologize to Nick. I want to apologize to Isabeau. I like my TikTok catalog. There's this great moment where this woman was like, she had like little comments that men had posted on her previous video that were like, yes, I love big women. And like, yes, big, beautiful women. All body types are beautiful. She's like, I would like to see the names of fat women you've been on dates with. How about that? (laughs) 
If you think big women are so beautiful, I would love to know how many you've been on a date with. If you think body acceptance is important, I would love to know that you've been sexually attracted to a fat woman. That's important to me. And also like a willingness to advocate for women who you aren't sexually attracted to. Like who have you spoken up for? Who do you follow on Instagram just because of their content output, not because of like you feel tingles (laughs) about their content and think that you'll be compatible. Of course, I'm speaking to the like 4.5% of men who listen to our podcast. Sure. And like that'll grow. I'm not worried about that. Um, Obviously, (laughs) men are coming into this conversation. But like what you just said about like, who do you stick up for? Because like there's this amazing scene where Deja and Alejandro have to co-lead this meeting to engage more actively with the minority incoming classes and like what are you doing in terms of like student groups and like how are we like building fostering mentorships they both get this service appointment she's like too stressed and he like takes the lead and is forced to invite one of our villains onto the board two of them actually and there's this awful scene where this higher tenured woman really overrides and overrules Marie our little adjunct and then also does it to Deja and Alejandro says nothing and does nothing yes and then he points out like hey it wasn't just up to you to do something and say something it's like right dude it wasn't just up to her you were also in the room and in charge of the meeting yeah like literally in charge of the meeting and you didn't use any of your privilege as a tenured dude to like fucking put Carolyn in her place and like the fact that Deja's the one who feels the most bad is also the problem because like in the same breath Alejandro's like oh man whenever I need somebody to help me on a committee or like to help me with student stuff the people I can count on are women identifying they're the people doing the labor it was a great moment I want to thank Katrina Jackson. I don't know if she'll ever listen. I doubt it. I hope so. So Caroline is the head of the Women and Gender Studies Department. She's a big fucking deal. She's a white woman. And the book talks a lot about the condescending way white women enter these spaces of diversity outreach and are condescending and basically are, you know, we've talked about this before somewhat unpopularly, but are recreating a patriarchy, you know, like white women, we are very well equipped to just be racist assholes. Not only are we well equipped, we are incentivized to be racist assholes. Handmaidens of white supremacy. Exactly. And that is what Caroline is doing. I don't think she realizes it. I mean, she's a fictional character. I don't think she realizes it. But I also think she would be very resistant to me saying that to her. Yeah, she'd be deeply wounded. Yeah. But the book points out all the ways that she is being a white supremacist. And when I read the things about like Caroline then did what white women across the campus always did, right? Like making these generalizations, I was like, oh, no, not fair. Not all white women on campus. And then I was like, oh, I... Yep. Like I was absolutely triggered to be defensive and not Mm self-interrogative. Right. It's the context of a romance novel. So I super love this heroine. I super love this hero. And so them being people who are like, wow, that lady sucks, allowed me to like sell. I was like, oh, right. What is it about her? And like they're punching up. Right. So Mm -hmm. I know that this is a problem across campuses. And like it reminded me of all the stuff that I knew theoretically, but like put it into a practice and like a sensational sensorial experience Mm -hmm. where I felt wounded for the heroine who I was over identifying with and then I felt wounded for the villainess who I was over identifying with and I was like okay I know how we got here you know and I think that's a bold move and also an important move it got me to do some anti-racist work on myself in my quiet moment of reading where I had to say like I trust this author Mm -hmm. I trust the heroine Mm -hmm. So if she says this is happening, let's think about like why I prickled at it. I think that's so right. I love that you've just shown your work because I think lots of folks, especially now, like to say that like romance is inherently feminist or romance is doing a certain kind of project. And some books are and some books aren't right. Like romance isn't a monolith, unfortunately, in that way. And there are plenty of racist books that are being published right now. And plenty of misogynist books. And plenty of misogynist books. But like 
the fact that this book asks or forces the reader, especially a white reader, into a position to interrogate themselves, I think that's like one of the most useful things about popular romance. Because you are swept away in the story. You're like deep into the fantasy. You're like all up in your sexy bits. And then it's like, hey, here's this cold wash of water and we need you to look at yourself a little bit. And it's like, oh, I didn't know I was coming to school, but now I am. And like, I got to look at myself. And I think like the space of romance is actually a really good facilitator. And there are really good writers who are excellent facilitators. And Katrina Jackson is an excellent facilitator. She is an educator. And I think that kind of gets into the thing we want to talk about with like this book having a project. Yeah. But I think maybe we should pause for a moment since we're transitioning and make that shmoney. Yeah, let's do it. This week's episode is brought to you by The Siren and the Deep Blue Sea by Carolyn Sparks from Kensington Books. As you may know, we have a soft spot for magical creatures here at Womance. The sea being lesser known, but very important part of our brand. And The Siren in the Deep Blue Sea has it right in the title. Isabel, I think you'll especially want to put this on your TBR. The Siren in the Deep Blue Sea, book two in the Embraced by Magic series, immerses readers in a world populated by duplicitous elves, sentient trees, shape-shifting dragons, and warrior princesses. Paging Xena! We've got a (laughs) shifter hero and hero I was really excited about that. Riz on the magic seeped Isle of Moon, Maeve is used to unusual powers and the way they fuel the politics of her world. But when she discovers the ability to shapeshift at will, she knows who she wants to share it with first. Brody, the enigmatic, infuriating shifter spy has always made time for Maeve, but it's been almost two months since she's seen him. And though no one else believes Brody is in danger, Maeve is more than ready to rescue him herself. Mm. The rumors Brody's investigating are terrifying. A secret army of magic users in the service of the cruel Circle of Five. But when he uncovers the identity of one of the five, the mission becomes personal. It's his dad, maybe. (laughs) Cursed as a boy by the sea witch, Brody can spend only two hours a day in his human form. Mm. A restriction that limits his future and muzzles, Mm. lol, his heart. Because he's a dog. Mm. Plus, Maeve teases him for being such a pretty doggy instead of appreciating his manly charms. We've all been there. To win his freedom, he must take on a terrible disguise. A pug. And when Maeve finds out, she'll unleash a tempest like no other. Everyone can probably get excited for the concept of Game of Thrones meets Princess Bride. It is both witty and epic. And speaking of popular appeal, Carolyn Sparks is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author. Publishers Weekly wrote the first book in the series, How to Love Your Elf, has a deeply satisfying swoon-inducing close. And there starred review. While the other fantasy books may focus more on violence and gore, the embraced books emphasize love, friendship, family with rollicking adventure. As opposed to more traditional fantasy, the Embraced by Magic series has heroines who are equals to their heroes and work to change the world. The five sisters are the driving force that is bringing peace to Earthland. Sounds like we've got the adventure of Shana, Shanna, the mystical world of mermaids kiss and a friends to lovers cherry on top if that sounds great. Get The Siren and the Deep Blue Sea from Carolyn, spelled K-E-R-R-E-L-Y-N, Sparks, a three-time Prison Award winner and Rita Award finalist. Sparks is a member of both the Houston RWA and area RWA, so if you are from either of those areas, you are obligated to purchase this book. It's true. With that, loosen your wallets. But never your principles. So this is kind of getting towards the idea of romance having a project is something that I think we talk about a lot, but this kind of gets towards my weirdest part of the novel. Mm -hmm. So I read the letter to the readers Mm -hmm. and in it, Katrina Jackson lays out a very specific project that she has in mind. She says, I hope you'll take at least three things from this story. Check in with yourself, be kind to yourself, and let people help you. Which I think is all great advice and really important stuff that we all need to take to heart. I think asking for help is a very important superpower. Like, we all have the potential to own that superpower. 
But she also says, I wanted to write about academia as I've seen it with people who look like people I know or know exist, people who aren't middle class and white and adjuncts who are often erased from representations of academia, even though they do the bulk of the teaching work at most U.S. universities. And I think that's really interesting because, right, we define a romance as a novel with a romantic relationship as the central plot line with a happily ever after or a happily for now, which I think has generally been accepted, which in the way that like it can generally be understood because we don't actually see like the forever lives of our hero and heroine as they move forward. It's true. But this book has a lot of even in the middle of love scenes, internal monologues about what it means to be an educator, what the struggles are of going up for tenure, what it means to be a professor. Like, I feel like work is this central relationship oftentimes rather than the relationship with the hero. Hmm. And I think we even see that in the happily ever after, which involves her friend Marie getting accepted for the tenure track position. Mm-hmm. Our heroine gets an R&R or review and revise back from a really prestigious publication that would help her get tenure eventually and would look good on her three year review. There's a lot and there's a lot of like explanation of like what it means to be behind the velvet curtain of the university experience. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It almost felt at times like that was outweighing the importance of the relationship with Alejandro. I think it was. I think like her work ethic and her inability to like make time because she couldn't was the obstacle, not how much they loved each other, not like their parents or like some external force. Like the external force was her ambition to become a tenured faculty member and like his having already achieved it. And I think like I want to push back just a little bit on this idea that I think that you might be circling that like, can we call this a romance? And it's like, yeah, because the thing that like Alejandro brings to her life is balance. Like his unlocking, like his loving her is somehow the thing that like unlocks her ability to create better boundaries. Like he forces her to like stop or like they're going to like grade together and then like they only grade for three hours and then they like have amazing sex and order pizza and then like grade a little bit more. Like it's his cherishing of her, his holding her precious that begins to pull her out of this spiral that she's really in about work until you drop and then sleep for four hours and then get up and do it again. She's in a boom and bust cycle and his he he blows in like a warm breath of air that like really helps her pause. And I think like that's what makes this like such a quiet romance. There's like no dark moment of the soul. He never like steps on her toes. And even when like, she's not answering his calls, there's no dramatic scene where he like shows up in her classroom demanding to know where she's been. Like it's like really professional. But he goes to her colleague and friend and mentor's office and gets a speech about what it means to be a woman in academia. Yeah. And I think that's what makes me think, like, what is this novel really about? Is it really about this romantic relationship or is it really about this work relationship? You know, I really like romances that don't have a dark moment of the soul between the Mm -hmm. two main characters, because I think like oftentimes there aren't those, you know, and I think about Heartbeat Braves, which is like a very similar Mm -hmm. situation where it's actually fine for them to be together and like all of the angst is around work. Mm-hmm. But in Heartbeat Braves, they like share that work and they mm-hmm. discover one another through that work. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in this, they both have like their own projects that they're undergoing and him less so. Right. Like I definitely feel like the hero is in service to the heroine in this novel. Yes. And like his work is in service to the heroine. But we spend so much time with Deja and in her perspective, or it feels that way, at least it is that way that I'm just like all of the angst around her job Mm -hmm. and her work is... I mean, it's significant. She misses Christmas with her family and not for the first time. Yeah, she's been consistently not going home for Christmas with her family and doing Skype Christmas, which like, whoa, that's heavy. Yeah, dude. Whoa, that's a big choice. I actually don't know anyone personally who's made that choice for a career. Neither do I. I know people who have like adjusted Christmas, but have still had a Christmas. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there were a couple of Christmases during John's residency where, like, that just... We were here. (laughs) Yeah. 
But we, we still had it. <laughs> yeah. It was really intense and very dark. Yes. So, like, while I appreciate the fact that this romance novel doesn't have that dark moment of the soul with the relationship, it does have that dark moment of the soul with her relationship to her job. Yes. And I think the fact that the angst is so looming, so omnipresent throughout their relationship, that makes it feel like this discussion of what it means to be in academia, what it's like to work in academia in the 21st century. Which I will say I really liked, I really enjoyed. I think a lot of people need to fucking read about. I also don't know, like, that's the thing. I'm like, what's the balance? Like, what's the balance? Is it enough to just have a relationship or does it have to be the central relationship? I think it's like the way that the relationship works, right? Like the fact that like this was a hero so totally and utterly in service to heroine was... Interesting to read because I can't readily recall another hero who was in such service. And the fact that he's able to be in such service because of his privilege, but also because of his deepening allyship, his love for her functions as a buoy in the storm of her discontent. And for me, that's like without Alejandro, like she still had Tony, she still had Marie, but like she would have really spiraled. Like there's a version of the story where she and Alejandro don't get together and she like is totally burnt out before she even gets to the tenure committee in year seven. Like she just like fucking pieces because she can't. Like it's untenable. The workload was untenable. The way that she was answering emails all the time, like she's always on her phone. And like the idea that you need someone else to like come help you build boundaries I think is a powerful discussion both in romance and out of it yeah because like especially women are socialized to always be givers and like you have an unending capacity to give because like you're nurturing you're caretaking you can do it even as it makes you feel bad even as you shouldn't even as you need to learn the powerful good magic of no and it takes a fucking cisgender dude to be like you need to say no more and you can say no to me yeah. And like, that's where we'll practice. And I'll forgive that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that kind of also gestures towards this other thing I was really interested in the novel, which was this idea of her being like semi-resistant to the speed at which they were progressing. Mm-hmm. But then putting a time limit on like falling in love and like being in love is like so, I don't know. I've never had that personally. <laughs> 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 About whether or not I was moving too fast or too intensely with any relationship. I'm going to say it's a gift. But I I would say like, you know, I really like the fact that she had those conscious moments and that this was a very self-aware heroine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess my weirdest part was just like having to just like put a pin in it is like this is a romance novel that not only has a project that is explicit in the text, but Mm -hmm. that is explicit in the author notes that Mm -hmm. is separate from these two people falling in love. But Isabel, I think you make a great point about him introducing to her the magical power of no. And I love Mm -hmm. the way you put that. That was beautiful and brilliant and should be on throw pillows on Etsy (laughs) if it's not already. (laughs) What did you say? The magical and something power. It was great. Thank you. I can't wait to listen to you say it again. (laughs) I mean, it'll be in the merch for Womance, right? For sure. (laughs) Once we get merch, it'll be on there. But it's true. Like being able to like the first time someone, anyone sets a boundary for you or demonstrates that it's okay to have a boundary, how life changing that is. Morgan, I can tell you exactly where I was, how old I was when I had a colleague ask me how I best communicated. I was 29 years old and I had this incredible human being be like, I'm a constant communicator and I know that can be a lot for people. So like, what are the best ways that you communicate? And I was like, no one's ever asked me that in my whole life in any of my various iterations of working. And she's like, oh, okay, well, think about it and get back to me. And I was like, oh my God, I get to like dictate how I want to be interacted with. Like, what the fuck? Life-changing. I remember the first time someone told me when it was appropriate to apologize. Ah, that's another big one. Yeah. And like, there's a lot of politic around apologizing. First of all, you should only apologize if you've done something wrong Mm -hmm. and that you could have prevented, right? Like something that you had control over and that you let go, right? That's when you apologize. But there's other times when like, even when that happens, like you're running late, apologizing can just add more angst to the situation. Whereas like expressing gratitude, you know, creates like a positivity around it. Right. Like, thank you for 
your flexibility. I appreciate that you waited. And then there's another way where you can apologize and make yourself the victim and not actually be listening to what the other person is saying and like taking it on board. And it's a way of getting out of a difficult conversation. And I had like who I would consider like a difficult boss express that to me and life changing. Yeah. And being able to set that boundary of like, this is when I'm going to say I'm sorry. And also just like taking a moment for myself and deleting my work email app from my phone because there's nothing that's going to happen. Like I remember telling myself, like I was so stressed. I was so overwhelmed. And I was like, there's nothing that is said in an email that I cannot manage within like 15 minutes of being at my desk. Now people may expect you to, but that's their fucking problem. Right. And like Alejandro has that on fucking lock. Like I was literally nine months younger than I am today before I deleted my work email from my phone because I wanted to be like, oh, I'm a good employee. I'm so fucking available. It's like, no, there's nothing that can't actually be handled that like needs to be handled between 6 p.m. the last time I checked my work email and nine the next morning. Like it's insane that I'm making myself this available. I like I like look at it and then I'm like, great. Now I have to think about this until tomorrow morning when I can actually do something about it. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And like the quarantine only made it worse because like, you know, then my home space became my workspace and like, you know, like all of those boundaries, it became so much more crucial to create good work boundaries. And like for this book to have a hero whose entire like animating factor is to help teach the heroine no. Yeah. And that like she can practice on him because he's safe and he'll continue to love her and like whatever. And like that no then feeds her and gives her the confidence that she needs to say no to the villain. And like all of that was like such a deft handling of the socialization of women, especially in academia, especially as it comes to the ask of always. I don't know who needs to hear this, who might be listening to this podcast right now, but like nothing bad has happened to me because I deleted my work email app from my phone. And it's been through three different jobs. Nothing bad has happened to me because I've deleted my work email off my phone. I'm an event planner. Like when shit hits the fan, it hits the fan. And only give out your personal cell phone number (laughs) to the people who it really matters to. You know, don't give it out to every Tom, Dick and Harry who might need to get in touch because they will abuse it. Especially if they're a Tom, Dick, or Harry. Oh, yeah, because they're like, oh, woman, that means yes all the time. Like, yeah. are you really going to deny me? Emotional labor, physical labor. Give it they to will me. Th- yeah, they expect it. They expect it. Yeah, dude. And I've been known, uh, yeah, people have said that I'm condescending. I am. Sometimes people have said many things about me because of that boundary. But do you know what? It really doesn't fucking bother me because I can't hear them say it to me on my personal cell phone. Or during your time where you're like actually recharging and having a glass of wine with like, you know, your beautiful dog and like on your couch and hanging out with your partner. Creating space to live the lives that we have as human outside of the thing that we do to make money is such an important thing that I think we are especially in late capital told not to do. Yeah. Because so much of our value is wrapped up in the thing that we do that earns monetary value. That's the thing. It's like, what are you dying for? Right. Because you are, you're giving your time, you're giving your life, you're dying for something. And how dare someone expect you to die for them unpaid when you Mm -hmm. like have no reason to Mm -mm. (laughs) interact with them outside of that, you know, I found this great method of meditation where you like think of like a mantra and it can be any silly words you want or sound or whatever. But you think about all of the things that are outside of your work that you can give your energy to and your Mm. life to. And when you start thinking about work outside of work, you then repeat that mantra and it helps you recenter and live in the moment, which I think is really hard to do. But that changed my life having that mantra. But I think, yeah, like the hero is a boundary. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like what hero isn't a metaphor maybe in a romance novel? I think 
think that might be it. Like Alejandro feels like the most naked version of what a hero is, which is like a fantasy projector screen, but also as like a metaphor for something like a need met. Yeah. And Alejandro met, yeah. is like the most attractive, but also the most like mannequin-y version of that. Like other than the fact that he's like good at his job and loves tailored suits, like what do we fucking know about this guy? Right. You know, like we don't even know what kind of car he drives. We just know that he has one. Like, right. and he like lives in an apartment and we know that he's not a good cook. Like there's <laughs> so little on Alejandro that he's honest about it I know but like he's so hot and I think like that's one of the things that I I loved so much about this book because it made the mechanizations of the hero heroine move very clear to me in a way that like had been less clear and like that brings me to my weirdest part which is like this book is told almost exclusively through Deja's perspective we don't get Alejandro's head hop until chapter five and then we don't get it again until chapter 12 and then we don't get it again until much later and then it's it's very sparse we get it much more at the end when Deja pulls away we spend more time in Alejandro's head but it is certainly not a one to two ratio and it's not even like a one to five and so like that also made it naked because like the moments that we had to enter into Alejandro were moments where he appreciated how much he loved flirting with her or like the moment where he's like I wish she could see me through my eyes and so then we got to appreciate it for Deja and like that was the pleasure of his head hop because like we spent so little time there and I was like the only reason we are in his perspective at all is to worship Deja's body or her brain and I'm like I'm not mad about that I just (laughs) noticed it because he never had to explain anything that he'd done wrong he never had to be like oh I misspoke and she now feels this way and I have to like do the mea culpa oh my god I'm having this like oh my god yes moment where I was like why did I like this so much? And it was because like we did not use the hero's perspective to justify the hero being a bad person. <laughs> yes, exactly. We use the hero's perspective exclusively to worship the heroine. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it is like an objectification. Sure. I think men could probably deal with like a little bit more objectification. I think they can too. I had like a few hangups where I was like... All right, his like perfectly groomed hair is like perfectly tailored suits, even though that's not called for in the 21st century, <laughs> is like smacking a little bit of like he likes it. Definitely like a patriarchal type who's like back in the old days. I loved it in the 50s. which is disturbing you know it was like pleasurable in this context to like appreciate a man's body to like objectify a man's genitalia for but it did it without that because yeah you know a feminine perspective will always or I don't want to say always because I don't want any examples thrown back in my face but I am pressed I am absolutely pressed to find an example of a feminine voice completely objectifying another human being Mm -hmm. a man who they're having sex with rather so I think you're exactly right like so was it weird or was it fun was it weird in that it was like unusual or was it weird in that it was like ooh ooh no it was weird in that it was unusual I noticed it not that like I didn't like it the only thing is that it gave me pause I was like oh why are we in your perspective when you know Deja's just been like oh he's such a good man do I even deserve him like blah 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 imposter syndrome imposter syndrome and then we switched to his perspective and he's like I've never wanted a woman more I know he's he's such a hot little potato he really is I think you're making such a good point which is like just because something's weird just because you notice something just because it sticks out just because it makes you feel like aware of your own biases and conscientious of your own desires doesn't mean it's necessarily bad which is you know part of the context of the weirdest part but I would like to get more explicit with you and ask you what was your sexiest part oh boy this was a very sexy book It's a lot of sex scenes. A lot of sex scenes. A lot of really good corporeal, wet noises, ass slapping, ball slapping sex scenes. She is my favorite sex scene writer. Yeah, I can see why. Like, it's so good. There are a couple times in this book. There's one time where we get a break to talk about her, like, internal, like, justification for having sex in her office, which I didn't love, but I knew that 
that you would love. I loved the sex in their office. I didn't need her explainer on it. Like the first time that they have it, it's so hot. Like it felt like inevitable, like they were about to set the desk on fire. That was really hot. The second time when she does her whole like, I needed this. Yeah. I'm a woman with needs. I was like, I bet Isabeau's into this part. You know, no, that wasn't. Not particularly. Not particularly. Wow. You are a woman who contains multitudes. I am, but not that many because like one of the sexiest (laughs) parts that I noticed was the car sex scene. (laughs) And now I'm noticing that I like car sex scenes and I'm like, is this a picadillo that I have? Like, why do I always like these? Oh my god. Car sex scenes as Piccadillo. Because I really like that one. If you haven't read Crash by J.G. Ballard or seen the adaptation by David Cronenberg, you should. (laughs) You like car sex. I want to continue liking it, Morgan. I don't want to have it ruined. (laughs) That's a really good point. Okay, fair enough. Uh, What was your sexiest part? Uh, Well, it's the same thing. I realized I had a Piccadillo and it's phone sex. Nice. So he goes home for his break and he calls her. Mm-hmm. This book has like a real, like the first time I've ever read Skype sex, I think. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed it. And I don't know if that comes from me like appreciating, like I love corporeal sex scenes, but maybe I actually like disembodiment during sex. <laughs> like I don't want to get too much into my personal life, but there are some like flags for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that Skype sex scene is insane. Also, like, the build-up to the Skype sex scene. Yeah, the, like, phone call was the sexiest part. Like, him being, like, nervous on the phone. Yeah. Him, like, calling her at other times during winter break was I the know. sexiest part for yes. me. So good. I like the parties going on behind him, and he, like, steps away. Yeah, and closes the door. Like, keeping it a secret, I think, is always, you know, secrets are always problematic. Friends make secrets secrets don't make friends but they do make for an erotic sex scene they do the buildup of this novel i know but i will say like all of the sex scenes are very hot very like diverse and <laughs> they have yeah. like a lot of different things happen there are even times when like the sex scene is made unsexy in the aftermath i remember like remembering the feel of his sticky penis softening in her hand it was like Ooh. i mean like in 2020 i'm pretty unfazed but if I had read that in 2019, that would have been the whole episode. You know, super fair. It was so weird because like he ejaculates early in his pants and he's like really embarrassed by it. Oh my God. Yes. Like premature ejaculation is also made hot in the pages of Office Hours. I know. And she's like, I feel so complimented. Like, let's get into the shower together and like really like recovers the moment. And he's like embarrassed, but like allows himself to be charmed out of his embarrassment. Like everything about this book, like fucking I just like cannot five out of five would read again instantaneously. Yeah. I mean, it's a romance for me as well. Yeah. Loved it. It's a romance. I think like if you haven't read Katrina Jackson, you haven't read what romance can be. Yeah, welcome to a fucking treasure trove. Yeah, even though I went on that whole diatribe of like, is it a romance? I'm like, I hope this is a romance. (laughs) Yeah. Because like, I think there is a political project that has been surfaced. Like, I do feel like Kathleen Woodowis had a political project. She did. Right? But I think it's been surfaced and made explicit in the 21st century. And I think there's a way of doing that with like a lot of like erotic erotics, mm-hmm. like erotics and like the Susan Sontag sense, plus the like erotic literature sense that can happen. And I really loved what this book did. It was satisfying to me. It was deeply angsty. I saw some reviews on Amazon where people were like too stressed out. And I was like, yeah, she's almost too good of a sensorial writer. It's true. Where it can really like bear down on you the feelings of anxiety anxiety and stress around this. I I am going to look up the other book that I read by her that was not stressful at all. That was just like pure pleasure from scratch about a former academic who moves to this small town in North Carolina to open up a bakery and starts a relationship with a local sheriff and a fireman who knew each other from their military days, which adorable. Like, guys, you know that I'm not into that stuff. So it's pretty special that I would be like hot cha cha. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I really recommend Katrina Jackson. Hello, Mrs. Avon and Mrs. Harlequin. I know you listen to our podcast. Always great to have you here. Do give Katrina Jackson a massive amount of money. I don't think she's that into being a professor based on this book. <laughs> Or hopefully she has tenure and now she's like either Tony or Alejandro. She's so yeah, I hope she's Tony right now. But I I do hope that you give her like a big juicy advance on something that has a hand painted cover featuring two people of color. And the painting is done by a person of color and the graphic design is done by a person of color. And anyways, that's just on my wish list for 2020. I've had a rough go of it. If you guys could do me that solid, that would be fucking cool. Also, you'll make so much fucking money. It's like betting on a sure thing. Yeah, like who wouldn't like this? I don't fucking know anyone. Like this is a book that like this immediately goes into my recommend to romance uh, novices as well as aficionados. Well, we get a lot of people, Isabel and I, in our personal life who like reach out to us looking for like a piece of erotic fiction, right? What's cool about reading erotic fiction like this is that you're paying someone who created it, which is really like, it's way too easy to get free porn. I'm very against free porn and I would still use free porn. Like, cause in a moment of weakness you're so like spend the 3.99 or buck 99 on a katrina jackson novel until pornography is actually fixed as an institution and just like enjoy like you can read these sex scenes outside of context and they're still gonna be great but read them in context and they're gonna work even more for you and i think that's fucking it's just like so good so like if you're into that kind of thing katrina jackson all the way for your sexy needs i would say bang for your buck better than priest maybe dare i say i liked this better than priest and priest is like balls to the walls sexy so priest might only be sexy though in the context that it's a priest you could enjoy katrina jack well maybe for some of us Katrina Jackson is like hot regardless of the context. It's true. Think about the amount of skill it takes to write something concise that creates this political message, that creates hot sex scenes, that also propels a plot forward. It takes a lot of skill. I want to read her first novel, her flame in the flower, her big, Mm. dirty, let it loose, juicy novel where there's like 18 different boat trips. That's what I want to read. Sounds good. From these really skilled writers that we have in the 20th first century who are not allowed to let their freak flag fly i think enough yeah i agree i mean yeah any other thoughts no we didn't talk about setting which you wanted to do oh it takes place in uh centerville and i had a real like uh notre dame slash indiana feel and i just wanted to be like college towns suck because you're constantly running into the undergraduates but college towns are great oh for sure anyway that's all i wanted to really say about the setting like how like incestuous it feels like how surveilled oh man that would have been a great conversation shit well Maybe next time we do a book about uh, college towns, a college town. I'm like, this won't be the only one (laughs) with that. Loosen your stays, but never your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.